Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what could be the reasons why Georgia is among states with the lowest COVID-19 vaccination rates for kids and teens? We'll hear from Atlanta-based pediatrician Dr. Andy Shane from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. And over in DeKalb County, it was considered an affordable housing complex with rentals well below the market rate. 750 Eastlake was then bought by a faith-based nonprofit. Now, just given months' notice to move out, many residents are struggling to find new housing. We've heard this type of story before. From Decaturist.com, reporter Zoe Seiler broke the story and will take us through all the drama. Important issues for and about your community. All that's just ahead. But first this, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham will be required to testify before a special Fulton County grand jury. Of course, this special grand jury here in Atlanta is investigating whether former President Donald Trump and others in his circle broke laws in an attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. U.S. District Court Judge Lee Martin May denied Graham's request that as a sitting senator, he was exempt from being forced to testify. And Graham cited due to his legislative duties, he was shielded under sovereign immunity. However, the judge didn't agree with that. In her opinion, writes, quote, among several reasons, quote, potential communication and coordination with the Trump campaign and its post-election efforts in Georgia and Graham. His public statements following the 2020 election is of great significance to the issue presently before the court, close quote. Now, WAB News will have more later today during All Things Considered. The campaign websites for Republican Governor Brian Kemp and his Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams look very different. One is full of position papers, the other is not. Susanna Capilouto reports voters say they want to know what politicians plan to do during their terms, but for some candidates, less information is best. Stacey Abrams' website features write-ups of 13 policy points ranging from the economy and education to public safety and health care. Brian Kemp's website says he'll continue to ensure, quote, Georgia remains the best state to live, work, and raise a family. How? He doesn't say. But because Kemp is the incumbent, he may not need to, says UGA political scientist Dr. Charles Bullock. Kemp's position may well be that you see what I've done, if you like what I've done in the past, and you'll like what I continue to do in the future, and trust me. Bullock says voters who are familiar with the candidate, but maybe not their policies, often fill in the blank next to their name anyway. And there's evidence from political science research that voters will do that. that if they aren't sure where a candidate is, they will, and they like that candidate, and they will assume the candidate would agree with them. Incumbency, he says, is an advantage, but to a point. Now that we're entering the competitive stretch of the campaign trail, that means debates. And in debates, policy positions often have a way of coming out. 
Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. There's a big vote before the Atlanta City Council today on whether to rent the city jail to Fulton County. Now, the deal calls for housing up to 700 inmates at Atlanta's jail in an attempt to ease overcrowding at Fulton's jail. Mayor Andre Dickens urged the city council last week to approve the plan. He said hundreds of men are sleeping on the floor in Fulton's jail and Atlanta can give temporary relief. Now, opponents, which include the Southern Center for Human Rights, say that Atlanta jail should be closed and turned into a diversion center. They also say Fulton's overcrowding can be solved by giving consent bonds to those whose bonds are already set too high. The climate tax and health bill, also referred to by Democrats as the Inflation Reduction Act, is headed to President Biden's desk. You heard that on NPR. It's packed with climate and health initiatives that includes programs to boost green industries in Georgia, like solar power and electric vehicles. It also has tax credits for home improvements that save energy. It's the biggest bill Congress has ever passed on climate. But overall, it's, quote, far from perfect, as Biden even said last month. Well, WABE checked in with students across Metro Atlanta to get their reactions. I don't know if I'm jaded over the few years that I've been able to vote or not, but to me, it's definitely like a hopeful skepticism, honestly. I think this is the best they could have done with the people in Congress right now. The Inflation Reduction Act, that all happened because of young voters in our state. We helped get the last, the 49th and 50th vote on that bill in the elections two years ago. As a result, we have the largest investment in protecting our future from climate change. It lacks a lot of important policies that disproportionately affect young people and also specifically young people of color, significant investments in green schools and affordable housing, investments to advance uh, racial and environmental justice. So I think it definitely has positives that affect Atlanta and the country, but there's much more we can do. And the voices of Emory University student Sydney Warner, Mark Putnam from Georgia Tech, and Melissa Malden, a climate activist at Decatur High School. And that story was produced by our own Billy Oppenheimer. Finally, there's always next season. The Atlanta Dream slim playoff hopes were dashed Sunday after that 87-83 loss to the New York Liberty. Outstanding rookie Ryan Howard led the Dream with 24 points in the defeat. Reflecting on the season, first-year head coach Tanisha Wright says the team is moving in the right direction. This team, this 2022 team, really set the foundation for what our, what our franchise and what our organization wants to be moving forward. Atlanta finished the season with a 14-22 and 22 record. You're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. In DeKalb County, the average medium rent is, hold on, just listen, $1,995. 
That's $526 above the national average rent of $1469. And these figures are from hotpads.com. That's the online rental portal. It also estimated that in DeKalb County, where you got about, what, 757,000 folks right now, 45% are renters. And given these stats, finding what's considered affordable rental units is no doubt challenging, and especially when apartment complexes change either management or ownership. Well, now comes a saga involving 750 East Lake in the Oakhurst community located in DeKalb County, city of Decatur. There's so much to this in terms of backstory to now. I'm joined now by reporter Zoe Seiler from Decatur's.com. Not only has she been following this, but she broke the story. Zoe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's just sit back and take our listeners through all of this. First, let's get a snapshot of the Oakhurst community. Describe this neighborhood. Uh, yeah, it's um, kind of a neighborhood indicator. Um, it seems to me, um, at least in this area where this apartment complex is, it's pretty residential and kind of by um, some local businesses. Uh, and yeah. It's a pre- pretty just run-of-the-mill, plain-old neighborhood. Pretty diverse? Pretty much. Um, you know, I'm not totally sure off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but... That's all right. Um, this property, Zoe, located at 750 East Lake Drive, it's rentals, all rentals, right? Yes. Older, an older complex, pretty much? Yeah, I believe um, it was built in the early 60s, and so it was kind of, um, I think, grandfathered in to the zoning that it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's what the city considers to be naturally occurring affordable housing. Mm-hmm. How many units How many units are we talking about, Zoe? Uh, there are 16 units on this complex. And this property, it's changed ownership a few times, correct? The last, what, decade maybe? I think so, but it definitely has at least in the last year or so. Now, the Braden Fellman, they were the last owners before we sold to the new group that we're going to talk about in a moment, correct? Correct. And Braden Fellman wanted to do what with this property before selling it? Uh, Yeah, so they owned the property from about 2019 to just about earlier this summer. Um, So back in the fall, um, in October of 2021, they had tried to rezone the property from um, its single-family residential right now, and they were seeking to have it be multifamily residential. So they wanted to, from my understanding, was, um, you know, tear down the existing 16 units, and they wanted to build 57 uh, one-bedroom units, um, and I believe the current um, units are a mix of like one-bedroom, two-bedroom. Um, so they wanted to have 57 one-bedroom units. It would have been about three stories, um, and that project in particular was just met with a lot of opposition at the time from the Planning Commission and from the community. Um, and I think per the City of Decatur's inclusionary housing zoning ordinance um i think about 10 percent or so of those units would have had to be affordable so i think that would have put them at about six units Mm -hmm. um and so i think there was a lot of concerns at the time from the community that the redevelopment would actually reduce the available amount of affordable housing instead of producing more because the remaining like 51 units would Mm -hmm. have been at market rate market rate wow so Mm -hmm. going from 16 units to 57 and obviously you have to build up, as with a lot of areas, not only just in DeKalb <laughs> County, but here in Atlanta. You can't build out. you got to build up. So right. that was met with opposition, and Braden Feldman said, okay, well, we'll. I'm, not, I'm not saying they sold it because of that, but they sold it, right? They did. And they sold it to whom? Uh, 
uh, they ended up selling it to Wellroot Family Services, um, which used to be known as the United Methodist Children's Home. So they were located um, in Decatur off of South Columbia Drive at what's now known as Legacy Park. Um, but I think their main office is now in Tucker. I'm going to get to Well Root in just a moment, but I want to go back to the many residents there at 750. Um, this is considered affordable, may not be technically deemed affordable in terms of like we have with Atlanta housing authorities, but it was it was considered affordable. 16 units may not sound a lot to some folks, but definitely 16 households here where this was home for people for a, a, a lot of years for some of them, correct? I, th- I believe so. Yeah. The one resident that I had talked to had lived there for about 19 months or so, but she said she had some neighbors who had lived there for several years. Hmm. Wellroot Family Services buys the property. Take us through what happened next. What did you hear from residents in terms of their communication with Wellroot? Yeah. So um, what I had heard, I think I don't know that the residents necessarily knew that Wellroot was the owner, at least initially. Um, so they were given a letter at the beginning of June um, that said the property had gotten a new owner, and it was 750 East Lake LLC. Um, and they were given, I think, phone number and name for maintenance requests um, for the property managers um, and notified on like how they can send their rent. And I think at one point they were given um, like their statements in a self-addressed envelope um, so they could send their uh, rent payments there. And at least the resident that I had talked to, she kind of felt uncomfortable about mailing this, her rent paycheck or her rent check to Um, an address that she wasn't really familiar with. And so she had decided to drive over there to um, pay her rent Mm -hmm. and it ended up being the Wellroot offices. And so she was kind of confused by that at first. Um, And I think about the second time that she paid her rent um, and did the same same thing, drove over there. um, She had asked one of the property managers, like, so is Wellroot, like where your office is located? And she at the time said, no, we have a different office. And the resident had asked where that was located and she was met with, well, I can't disclose the location. So I think there was some confusion, at least at first, about who the actual property owner was. (laughs) Did Wellroot give any indication that they were gonna honor leases? I imagine some folks might've been on different types of leases in terms of length, or, you know, I know there are laws here that even in property, if owners change hands, you have to, and correct me if I'm wrong, if not, somebody will email me. You have to honor that lease, correct? Or at least buy the lease out from that that tenant. I believe so. And I think um, in my conversation with uh, Braden Fellman, I think they said, you know, I think Wellroot then assumed whatever responsibility comes with taking over those leases at the time. Um, and the city manager had told us, um, actually in our story that was up today, that uh, the city was under the impression that Wellroot was not going to be breaking any leases. Um, but I don't know that the residents necessarily knew that at the time. There seemed to be a lot of confusion around that, at least early on. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Decatur's reporter, Zoe Siler, and we're talking about the property at 750, 750 East Lake Drive in the city of Decatur. I want to back up for a moment. So... Wellroot in these letters to the residents gave them 30 days to move out? Yep. So it was about 38 days. So residents, um, or at least the remaining residents, I think some had moved out um, before this, but 
the remaining residents were notified on August 1st that they had to be out by September 9th. So definitely not a lot of time to figure out their plans for moving. Zoe, can you give an, uh, t- tell our listeners, you don't have to mention names, but are we, are some of these households have small children or some of them older citizens? Can you give a snapshot of who some of these residents are? Sure. I believe it's um, kind of a mix of what you said, um, but the resident I had um, happened to talk to, she's a mom with a young son. Um, She's a teacher for a city school's educator. Her son is in the school system. Uh, She said that I think there were a couple other families living in the complex as well. So I think it was kind of a mix of residents. You reached out to Well Root for an interview, Zoe? We did, yes. So. And what happened? Yeah, well, so at first they um, didn't quite tell me a lot about what their plans were um, and just kind of had said they were a little too eager, um, I think, to move forward with this project. Um, But we have since learned um, that the short notice uh, that they gave the residents ended up being an internal communications error. Um, At least that's uh, from what the CEO of Wellroot had said. So I think they were just really excited to move forward with this project um, and they have reached out to their impacted residents. Um, And I have also learned that they are accommodating requests from residents for more time. Um, So I think some have already moved out, some have already had plans to move out in September, um, but the resident I talked to, she now has until October 1st to move out. So they're, um, I think, addressing it kind of on a need basis. And we want to let our listeners know on a programming note, Wellroot Family Services President and CEO Allison Ash, they actually reached out to us. They will join Closer Look tomorrow to talk about the organization's purchase of 750 mm. East Lake. I want to go back because you were told it was an internal error. That is what they have so told us so far. Telling, um, so. so they didn't mean to tell the people they only had uh, 38 days or whatever. They, I don't think so, no. <laughs> So we haven't um, quite learned yet, I think, exactly what that meant. But um, from what it sounds like now, I don't I don't think that they meant to give their residents that short of a notice to move out. You you don't think they meant that or they're, they're telling you they didn't meant to, to do that? Well, I guess I should say I don't think they meant to. But all they have said so far is that it was an internal communications error. Huh. Let me ask you, Zoe, what... The plans you have, you all have updated the story. They do have plans. Wellroot is a faith-based nonprofit, correct? Yes. So, what are their plans for the property? Uh, yeah. So, um, they Wellroot in general offers a lot of uh, programs related to like foster care, transitional and independent living, family housing, um, and so from what we have learned so far is that their plan is to provide housing for young adults and possibly families. Um, at that location, and they have told us that they do plan to keep it affordable, um, and their target population, I think, is those young adults and families who are, like, utilize their programs. So folks that they provide services for. And yes. what and what kind of services, to your knowledge, does Wellroot provide? Um, as To my knowledge, I think um, they do a lot of foster care, a lot of, like, independent living, um, and I think with this a particular property in this project, they will offer some wraparound services like financial literacy classes, tutoring, career development. So I think stuff like that. But I want to be clear that you have not had an exclusive interview with them. You're just receiving statements or emails. 
Uh, well, so we ended up um, sending them about like a list of 20 questions. Um, mm-hmm. And so then we got an email um, response from them, but I have not um, yet had the opportunity to talk to them like face-to-face or in person. What are you hearing from residents? And as you heard coming to this segment, and I know that you all know because trying to find affordable First of all, affordable housing, whatever that means to people, that changes depending on whom you ask. But also, too, when it comes to renting, and -hmm. you heard the stat I gave coming into this segment, the average rent to Cab County is $1,900. What are you hearing from residents in terms of being able to find something that is similar to in comparison to what they're paying now? Yeah, um, well, so I'm not totally sure about necessarily all residents, um, but at least... um, the woman I had spoke to, um, I, the options are very slim when you have just over 38 days, um, like they did initially. So, um, but as far as I know, she's still moving along, trying to find some place. Um, and well, Root had told us that, um, I think many residents have are in the various stages of moving. So some have been able to find something and will be, I think moving out come September um, and then other residents have been given more time, but um, to their exact situations, I'm not totally sure at the moment. And we should know too, just to be clear, well root to your knowledge is not, they're not going to tear down and put up another structure. They're just going to utilize the structure that they have here with these 16 units. Or do you know? Uh, That's my understanding is that they're going to keep the complex as it is. Um, So the planning and economic development director indicator had told us that, you know, at least their intended use for this property um, would not require them to rezone or anything like that. So assuming they keep the property as it is. So you all have been you broke the story and you all um, have been following this. I know this is kind of one of your first big stories as a journalist, correct? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> what did you learn out of all this? Um, that's a good question, but I think, so this was a story that initially came to us um, through the Oakers Facebook group of all things. And so I think this was a good example of something we can kind of take off of social media and kind of give that, you know, more of a human perspective and more information about what's going on. Um, and I think, it's just been a very valuable lesson and you know i think the value that we can provide to stories like this absolutely the community always sends story ideas what are you hearing though from i'm curious from city of decatur officials do they have any concern listen i know this is a private transaction between one entity to another but like so many regions around here affordable housing is the issue did any city of decatur officials weigh in on this at all Yeah, so a few of the commissioners did, um, and all of them uh, basically pointed to the Decatur Land Trust as possibly being something that could step in in a situation like this. Um, So the Land Trust was created in uh, 2021. Um, It's a nonprofit designed to address the city's loss of affordable homes. And um, I know they've been working on some affordable housing projects in the city. and so uh, Commissioner Lisa Meyer, she serves on that board. And mm-hmm. so she had told us that, um, you know, the land trust could be uh, something that could prevent a similar situation like this happening in the future. Um, but they just don't really have the funding, at least right now, to be able to buy these properties, I think, because they're just so new. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mayor pro tem had expressed um, a 
desire uh, to have the city's leadership have the right of first refusal to buy properties like this, you know, before they hit the market. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would probably be done through the Decatur Land Trust as well. Um, but yeah, so all of them were, I think, shocked to learn um, that the leases were going to be broken um, and just want to have some type of tool in the future to protect naturally affordable occurring housing like this. Zoe, how much was this property sold for? Um, you know, that is an excellent question, mm -hmm. and I do not have that number off the top of my it's head. okay. We can get it, and we'll find out. Zoe Seiler from Decaturish.com. Zoe, thank you so much for taking the time. Good story here. Keep us posted. And like I said, tomorrow we'll be joined by Wellroot Family Services President and CEO Allison Ash. She'll join us tomorrow to talk more about the organization's purchase of 750 Eastlake and the internal era that led to this all of this. So, Zoe, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Good job. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. This is Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're going to continue with the program in just a moment, but time now for another segment in WABE's The Heat Effect series, how the climate, how climate is changing Georgia. Now, this time it's about sports. Football players, well, we know, are back on the field. And I saw all the other athletes out there. I don't want to dismiss my cross-country folks and anybody else out there, but we know that from the pros to college to high school, Football players start their season at the hottest time of the year and many on sun-baked fields and wearing layers of equipment. And it's hot and that puts them at risk from the heat. Molly Samuel reports on how Georgia has taken steps to protect high school athletes and how the approach here has become a national model. It's late summer and the Cedar Grove Saints are doing drills on the field behind their DeKalb County High School. It's a sunny, humid morning. This is a good team. So in the last six years, we've won four state titles. Head coach John Adams. This past NFL draft, we put four guys in the NFL draft. Any other high school in the country do that? No, ma'am. Coach Adams is excited about this upcoming season. He's also watchful about keeping his athletes safe as they work out in this Atlanta heat. That's something Adonijah Green appreciates. The 17-year-old defensive end says he's heard about past tragedies with heat killing athletes. We're able to hydrate anytime with no restrictions on the water. And the players aren't wearing their pads yet. In late July, they start out training without them. With the pads, it gets hot, it gets heavy. It ties you down. These aren't just policies at Cedar Grove. The Georgia High School Association mandates a five-day period without pads as a ramp-up. We're seeing that that makes a big difference. Bud Cooper studies athletes and heat illness at the University of Georgia, and he wrote the heat rules for the high school association. They got put in place a decade ago. That's when Georgia was one of the worst in the country for high school football player heat-related deaths. Clearly, there was a problem. But it wasn't just here. Research shows over a 30-year period, nearly 60 football players around the country died from heat-related illness. Most of them were in high school. But Georgia's turned the situation around. In addition to the mandatory ramp-up period, teams have to measure the wet bulb globe temperature, which factors in heat, humidity, and sun exposure. Depending on that reading, there are more and longer breaks. And if it's hot enough, there's no outside practice. 
After the heat rules went into effect, Cooper did another study to see if they actually worked. And they did. There have been fewer heat illnesses, and in programs that followed the rules, no heat-related deaths among high school athletes in Georgia. It's exciting from my part. There is nothing that's more satisfying than for me to be able to sit here and say, I've done some things that have saved lives. I am so excited to talk about Georgia. Becca Stearns is the chief operating officer at the Corey Stringer Institute, a program based at the University of Connecticut named after a Minnesota Vikings player who died from heat stroke. Stearns says Georgia's rules have had a big impact because other states have used them as a model, though far from all states have heat rules. She says it's even more urgent now as climate change drives up temperatures and humidity. Unfortunately, I don't think our jobs are going to disappear. It's certainly a a very relevant conversation in terms of maybe trying to act now before it becomes even more intense and we're seeing an uptick in the cases of heat illness. And experts underscore death from heat stroke is preventable, but teams have to be prepared. All right, let's go. Cedar Grove's coach Adam says he checks in with his players and gives them longer than required breaks on hot days. They're kids, so you know, sometimes kids are just gonna try to toughen it out, but you gotta be smart. Life, he says, is more important than football. Molly Samuel, WABE News. And you can find more stories in this ongoing coverage about heat at our website, wabe.org slash heat. We're back in a moment. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. The message was clear. CDC officials were pretty excited regarding COVID-19 vaccines and the smallest folks in our population. Here's CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky back in June. COVID-19 vaccines are now available for children under five. With this recent authorization from FDA and recommendation from CDC, nearly 20 million children are now able to get vaccinated against COVID-19. I know many parents with very young children have been anticipating this day. We now know, based on rigorous scientific review, that the vaccines available here in the United States can be used safely and effectively in children under five. So what's the progress of vaccinations for our youngest folks? Well, according to a recent report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the answer depends on what state we're talking about. Now, here in Georgia, it's low. In fact, Georgia is among states with the lowest COVID-19 vaccination rates for kids and teens. Returning a closer look as a regular contributor on this subject, Dr. Andy Shane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and the Medical Director of Infectious Diseases at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And as we always say, we know that Dr. Andy Shane is an expert. She's the bomb, as the folks would say. But we also encourage you to consult with your own family physician. Dr. Shane, as always, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin here, because in that clip we just played with Dr. Rochelle Linsky, her optimism was high. Now, when that announcement came out last June, how about you? Were you optimistic that parents would get those little ones, those that could be vaccinated? I was, Rose, and I, I still am. And, you know, I think that parents really want to do the right thing, but sometimes the right thing is not always clear. And there have been lots of conflicting messages about vaccines And we really are trying to work very hard to make sure that parents receive the right messaging. 
And I su suspect conflicting messages, we'll get to that in a moment, could be the reason why Georgia has such low vaccination rates. But I want to back up for a moment because I'm curious, pre-pandemic, before all this COVID-19 and everything, how would you assess the U.S. was progressing in terms of the rate of children getting those childhood vaccinations that we all had to give? Were we pretty, were we doing pretty well? So uh, great question, Rose. And, you know, we sort of go through um, phases and cycles. And of course, um, you know, flu vaccine has always been a challenge and partly because that needs to be given every year. The traditional childhood vaccines we've had much greater success with because those are usually parts of a normal um, healthcare visit that a child will have with their pediatrician um, or they also can obtain them from, from the health department. And so we've had a lot of very good compliance with regular childhood vaccines, but flu vaccine has, uh, has always been a challenge. What do you think with the flu? Well, I think uh, two reasons. One, because you have to get it every year. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is also that I think some people don't perceive it as a risk. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what we've seen over the past at least five years or so uh, before the pandemic was a larger number of children without underlying medical conditions who were previously healthy, who had very, very severe cases of influenza. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, some of them ended up dying. And so really, it, it became a situation where it was really difficult to predict who was more, who was a greater risk for having more severe disease. And that's the reason why we really strongly recommend that every child receives a vaccination for influenza and every vaccine that they need uh, as they need to get them. And so now 2020 comes COVID-19. And then after a while, it takes some time. But now all children, teens, kids, the littlest ones, now they're all now comes a time where they're all eligible to be vaccinated, those that can be. Was it naive to think that perhaps because now we were dealing with the coronavirus that that might encourage parents to say, OK, look, you know, if you had any concerns before, now is the time because we have a vaccine that's available. We know what's been happening with COVID-19. Did you expect that maybe we would see more parents rushing out and getting these vaccines for the kids, especially the little ones, the little, little wee wee ones, as we call them? Right. And I think, you know, that that's that's really a great question. And what we've seen time and time again with COVID vaccines is that we have parents who are overly enthusiastic and really are lined up uh, it, waiting to get the vaccines and are there in line uh, when the pediatricians have them. And then we have a number of families who are much more hesitant and really require a lot of convincing and discussion. And then we have some families who absolutely refuse to, to have their children vaccinated. And I think it's been very challenging on a number of levels. You know, we talk about COVID-19 sort of as one uh, one entity, but mm -hmm. it's really, uh, it's been a lot of different, it's one virus, but it's been evolving over the past two years. And some of the variants have been very severe in children and some of them have been less severe. And so I think what happens is that parents feel that perhaps the less severe variants are less risky for their children and that they don't want to get vaccinated. And so now comes this report, Children in COVID-19 Vaccination Trends. And I read the entire 24-page report. I know that you did as well. And overall, the, the, when you read what the nation, how the nation has been progressing, depending on whom you ask, and we'll just go through the age groups here in, in a moment here, folks will tell you it's good or bad. Now, for ages six months to four years, Dr. Shame, this is of, as of August 3rd. This is about six weeks after the vaccine was first approved for this age group. Just 5% 
have received their initial dose of COVID-19 vaccine. It's 5%. For that age group, six months to four years. That uh, alarming, not surprising? Alarming, yes, and um, challenging uh, for us. And, you know, I think that there's there are lots of reasons. One, uh, parents feel that their children may not be at risk. Mm -hmm. Some parents are still very concerned with how and I'll say this in quotes, new this vaccine is. We've talked about the fact that this platform has been around for over 20 years, but since COVID-19 is so new, the vaccine, the development of the vaccine specifically for COVID-19 is, is new. But we know that millions and millions and millions of children have received these vaccines and have done very well, have had minimal adverse effects, and have really been protected from the severe uh, outcomes of COVID. I think one of the other challenging parts about all this is that we don't really know what the long-term effects of COVID are mm -hmm. in children. We're, we've talked about MISC before, the post-infectious inflammatory condition that affects the heart. Uh, we've talked about long COVID, which are symptoms that, that uh, exist long after one has recovered from COVID, brain fog, tiredness, um, inability to function as someone normally did before COVID. And so um, while some parents may not perceive these as risks in younger children, we certainly have seen these uh, post-inflammatory conditions and we're just beginning to understand um, how uh, severe they could be. And really the vaccine is something that we can do to protect children against uh, getting those severe conditions. I wanna stay with that age group for a moment, Dr. Shane, ages six months to four years, because here in Georgia, it's 1.9%. And we should note that you, Georgia and I think Oklahoma is actually also at 1.9%. Uh, so there are some border states here, we know Alabama, Mississippi also in that 1%. Anything that you want to correlate here in terms of messaging or, you know, often when we hear about health care Inequities and disparities, you know, southern states tend to be right there in the mix. So you got Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi at 1.9, 1.4, 1 1% of kids six months to four years old with the vaccination, with the COVID-19 vaccination rate. That's probably not surprising to you. It's not, but it's still uh, very challenging. And, you know, access is always a big issue uh, with healthcare in general and also with vaccinations. Although there have been tremendous efforts to try to make these vaccines available uh, in various locations, um, uh, in health departments and physicians' offices, there's no cost to anybody to receive these vaccines. And so uh, there really has been a big push. There have been a lot of community efforts, community drives to try to have these vaccines available. Um, there were lots of back to school efforts. Now, while that may be targeted at older children, mm -hmm. uh, there were also many of these um, efforts also um, had vaccines available for younger siblings. And so um, there have been a tremendous number of efforts. I think the hard part about all this is just perceived risk, honestly, Rose. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about these COVID vaccines sort of the way we think about a seatbelt, right? So a seatbelt will protect you from getting injured if you get into a car crash but it's not going to prevent you from getting into a car crash. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is an analogy that's been used by a lot of different people, but I think it really helps to bring home the importance and help somebody understand and interpret a lot of what we've been hearing in the media, that these vaccines don't have long lasting protection, that they have low um, effectiveness rates. And so 
That is true to some extent, but when we're looking at severe infections, they're extremely, extremely effective at keeping children out of the hospital, and especially for children who have underlying medical conditions. And you told me a moment ago that you also felt that with conflicting messaging. Now, we've heard this before, but I ask you as someone who sees patients, who answers questions, we, you and I have had conversation before about difficult conversations you've had to have with parents. If we're talking about conflicting messages, messaging that's out there, how does someone like you, you kind of caught in the middle, you know, what do you say? You hear something from the CDC, then you maybe hear something from a, a state department of public health or something different from a, a county or another official. You got all this out there and you can understand parents confused, concerned. So how would you then address all of that? So I do try in the best way to try to synthesize some of that information. And first of all, trusted sources are really, really important. And also trying to emphasize the positive aspects of the vaccine. Um, sometimes the media likes to focus on the negatives and that's what is sensationalistic and that's what sells stories. And so um, really focusing on the positive aspects and even though protection against having a COVID infection may be short-lived, protection against being hospitalized or having a severe infection or having one of the severe complications um, has been shown time and time again to be very, very effective. And so really trying to help families understand, we've talked a lot about the importance of one-on-one -on -one conversations mm -hmm. and um, those are time consuming, but they're so worth it because some one person's reason for being hesitant about a vaccine may be very different from another person's. And so if you structure your messaging about one aspect that may not be productive if uh, somebody is concerned because their aunt's child had a bad effect or what was presumed to be a bad effect from the vaccine. I want to move now, Dr. Shane, to this age group of 5 to 11 years. It's a little bit better here in Georgia, looking at about 23 percent of eligible children in that age group who've received at least their initial dosage. Now, nationwide, though, according to this, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, we're looking at about 17.9 million who have yet to receive their initial COVID-19 vaccine dose. This is in that age group of 5 to 11. Kids are now going to school. That's a very important age group. Very, it, very important. Is it the same this, issue? Yeah. Parents just don't know? Conflicting messaging? Same reason? That, yes, those are probably some of the same reasons as well. And I think also just... Uh, perceived risk. And actually, this group is uh, even more important. Um, I don't want to single out any age group because all of them are very important. But we know with school loss and learning loss and the challenges of keeping schools open when we have transmission of infections in schools is very, very challenging. And so making sure that children who are school aged who are going to be socializing and mixing with other children, perhaps more sometimes than six months to four year olds, um, is extremely, extremely important. Well, let's get to the old kids, as I call them, 12 to 17. Now, nationwide, it's, it's a little bit better, about 59%. And this is roughly maybe about 14.9 million have completed the two-dose vaccination series. These are kids ages 12 to 17. In Georgia, it's a little bit better. It's 54%. It's not up there as high as you look at Texas, 74%. California, 83%. But making strides, 54%. Is that an okay number? I guess someone like you, 100%. <laughs> You'll take 54%? 
I always want 100 percent. Now, you know, I think that 54 percent tells us we we need to do some more work. Now, I think it's also important to remember that vaccines for that age group have been authorized longer than mm-hmm. the younger age groups as well. But we certainly didn't see the huge um, uptake in the younger age groups that we did with the adolescent, uh, the older children and the adolescents. And so, um, you know, I think that that's something that's that's important as well uh, to note when we're comparing these rates, but we still have a lot of work to do. I always ask this question to you because you always have such great answers and I'll ask it again in terms of when you have conversations with parents, are you still getting the same questions for all the same groups or is it different now that kids is, is the, the littlest of the littlest can now get this vac- this vaccine. Are you still answering the same types of questions or are they different here? So I think that's a great question, Rose, and it's a ch- little bit of a challenging one. But what, what I've seen over time is that another component of hesitancy is that parents will say, well, my child had COVID and they were fine. So mm-hmm. I've now um, they're protected. Well, what we're finding with the Omicron variant is that that protection is not lasting as long as it was with some of the other variants. And so uh, we just don't know. Every child is different. And so um, I'm having more discussions with families now about the importance of being vaccinated, even though a child has been infected. Um, And so uh, that's probably a little bit of a change. Dr. Shane, have you run into situations where perhaps not everyone, even in the household, is vaccinated? And maybe the parent may not be vaccinated, but they're getting their child vaccinated. And if you have run across that, what's been your response to them? So I really try to uh, use the people that in the household that have been vaccinated to try to uh, persuade those who have not been vaccinated. And actually, I will just want to mention that, you know, children are all are wonderful advocates. And we've had lots of children, especially teenagers, who have uh, really helped to get their fellow friends uh, vaccinated and said, I was vaccinated. I'm doing fine. I'm protected. I want to play with you. I want to be, do things with you. Uh, please go get vaccinated as well. Um, I think that does bring up an important point. There are some adults in households who have been vaccinated and mm-hmm. perhaps may have had some, some, some side effects and felt uncomfortable, felt unwell for a day or so. And so it's understandable that one would not want their child to feel that way as well. But what we do know is that children who are being vaccinated, really the side effects from the vaccine are much, much less than what we have seen in adults. Well, school has started. The kids are back. The educators are back. We just t- talked about sports. Everyone's going to be going to the Friday night football games, which is it's something great to do. I love it. I miss it. So that means bigger crowds, more crowds, perhaps with no mask mandates now. And then also we got to worry about some other issues here. Um, let's go back to the being optimistic here. If we can get to, by the end of the year, is there a certain percentage that you would hope that, if barring any new variant, Dr. Shane, um, what do folks like you look for in terms of infection rates? Are we still looking at a percentage that we have to reach, or are you just taking it in terms of age groups? But someone like you who focus on kids, what is your hope for by the end of the year after we get through all of these mass crowds and holidays and all that, that what's an acceptable number, you think, in Georgia for kids to be vaccinated? Should we be over 60 percent? Do you focus on that? You know, I think numbers help us to for goals. And uh, people have done a lot of modeling, meaning they've tried to predict uh, what we need to 
prevent transmission of infection and prevent severe infections. And those numbers really, really do vary. I mean, obviously, I want 100%. Of um, obviously, I realize that's not uh, not realistic. So I think as high as we can get it uh, is really, really important. And uh, making sure that especially people who may be at greater risk, um, that those are the people that we really try to focus on. Although, as I mentioned in the beginning, we really are seeing otherwise previously healthy children who are also having severe infections. So anything we can do to try to get the rates up and just start with one vaccine. I know there's uh, several in the series and that's yeah. challenging too, but at least if we can get one in, that will be that will be a good start. I have a question from, from a listener who wants to know, do you think at some point then boosters will probably be heavily recommended for the youngest of our population here, as you, talk, you and Rose have been talking about? That's us. Hey. Um, you know, I think that we will probably see some boosters uh, at some point. Um, uh, my hope is that we can combine them with other vaccines, for example, the flu vaccine that children get every year. Um, so uh, that would certainly be advantageous and, and help with access. And there's lots of work going on right now uh, to look at that. And so I do try to, although we probably will have boosters and additional vaccines, and that can seem really daunting to parents and thinking about having the children have two and three and four vaccines over time. But, uh, you know, we need to do what we need to do, and we have to start with one. Dr. Anishane, as we wrap up um, these last two years, I remember when we first started the conversation when all this happened, and you think back to those conversations we had when we didn't even know when or if there would be a vaccine for kids, for the littlest ones, and now look where we are. What, August 15th, 2022? How do you sum all this up? This is amazing, Rose, and it's amazing scientific progress that we've made, um, and we've learned a tremendous amount, and I think we're all just trying to put all that together, but these vaccines are safe, and they work, and they do the job that they should be doing, and I would really encourage parents to have their children vaccinated, and if you have questions, reach out to reliable sources, ask your questions, have a discussion. It's so important. Dr. Andy Shane, Chief of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Emory University School of Medicine and the Medical Director of Infectious Disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Shane, as always, we appreciate you taking the time answering these questions for me and the listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Rose. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, Pat St. Clair. Lennox Johnson is our Closer Look summer intern. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash closer look. In fact, all of our segments are there in case you didn't know that. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And I got to say, thank you. I was on, on next door this weekend fussing about people, fussing about other people. And I was reading and I was scrolling. And someone said, hey, what's a good podcast about local issues? And someone said, Closer Look. Thank you so much for that. But I still will fuss at y'all about fussing about other people on next door. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.